Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. There is a short answer to the question, what started the Second Seminole War? That's simple. An ambush. The Florida Seminole Indians attacked a column of American soldiers by surprise. The soldiers were marching along the old Fort King military road to relieve the garrison at Fort King. A better question, however, begins with why. Why did the Second Seminole War start? Seminole anger with the U.S. government. Why were the Seminoles suddenly hostile to the U.S. government? because the U.S. government had unilaterally ended its treaty with the Seminole. Why did the U.S. government abrogate its treaty and fervently insist they remove from Florida 10 years before the treaty's expiration? It wanted their land. Why did it want their land? The answer to that question is more nuanced than one may imagine. In this episode, autodidact, living historian, and military reenactor Jesse Marshall joins us to explain the underlying causes that paved the way to war between the U.S. government and the Florida Seminole in 1835. Jesse Marshall, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. After Florida became a U.S. territory in 1821, with one exception, there had been no hostilities between the Seminole and the U.S. government. Tell us the overall Florida picture. There had been no significant violence between the Seminoles and the United States since the first Seminole War, 1818. There was a campaign in 1826 when the Seminoles were being contained within their reservation boundary. There were many Seminoles that didn't want to go, you know, continuing to pass out of the boundary to hunt. And there was a joint campaign between Florida militia, U.S. regulars under Major Dade, and some Seminole working together to round up some of the so-called outlaws who had passed into the white settlements and it attacked the farm of a gentleman in, uh, west of the Suwannee. And that campaign was rather brief and not very significant. And again, the bulk of the Seminoles actually aided the Army, at least tacitly, in that incident. So there had been peace between the Seminoles and the, the Army. Many of the officers just couldn't imagine the Seminoles fighting the Army, much less doing so successfully. They didn't seem to be all that hostile to the United States. During U.S.-led treaty negotiations, one Army officer witnessed what he called the birth of the Seminole Nation. Who was this officer, and what did he describe? George McCall was present at the Treaty of Moultrie Creek when that was hammered out in the early 1820s. The U.S. government established a tribal reservation in Florida for all the Florida Indians, and McCall makes a comment that he literally witnessed the birth of the Seminole Nation. In other words, the U.S. government formed what we call in the post-1822 period the Seminole Nation. Seminole pledged themselves to the sovereignty of the United States at Moultrie Creek, and so far as anyone could tell, they were abiding by that. Leadership selection for this new Seminole nation was not without some contention. 
Interestingly, according to McCall, the majority of those Seminole were actually Miccosukee, and there was contention between the Miccosukees and the Seminole proper because they were going to elect a head chief for the purposes of being a Seminole nation, and they originally elected John Hicks, who was a Miccosukee, and later Micanope, who was the Seminole proper's hereditary chieftain, became the head chief by the Seminole Wars outbreak in 1835. The U.S. government from 1822 to 1835 considered the Seminole United as a nation. In the early 1830s, in the removal treaty of Payne's Landing and then the Fort Gibson Treaty out west, the federal government considered that the Seminoles had officially traded their Florida reservation for the western land and considered that the signatures of the several chiefs bound the entire Seminole nation. This planted the seeds of war since the chiefs of the various bands of Seminole that resided all over Florida who had not signed the treaty, vehemently disputed the U.S. assertion that the treaty applied to all bands of Seminole within the territory of Florida. In addition, the chiefs who had signed disputed many of its terms, saying they either did not concede to them or they were misrepresented to them. The trouble came with the removal treaties and the Seminoles claimed prior to the removal coming nigh that they felt that the removal treaty, particularly the Fort Gibson one, had been a fraud, that they didn't know what they were signing, the Indian commissioners that had signed it, they didn't know they were speaking for the whole tribe. There were other comments that they felt that the Treaty of Moultrie Creek in the early 1820s had promised there wouldn't be removal discussion for 20 years. That would be in the early 1840s. Near 10 years prior to that, now they're being pressed into removal. The commanding general in Florida, Duncan L. Clinch, had the difficult task of trying to persuade the Seminole to move. He did have one big thing in his favor. He was universally liked. Clinch, by his biographer's accounts, he had well known for having no ill words for anyone. He was well thought of at the time by the U.S. government and his own soldiers. In fact, uh, Private Bemrose says in the years he was in the Army, he only met one Christian man, and that was General Clinch. As all the rest, including myself, were essentially heathen. Even an abolitionist bragged about how well his slaves thought of him, etc., in the 1840s. Although the government policy, as established in the law, was Indian removal, he believed removal was the best thing for the Seminole, for their sake. Besides Hops and the Indian agent, Clinch was there to convince the Seminole as well that it was to their benefit to abide by the federal government's view and to remove West and live on the Creek Reservation and eventually combine with the Creek. Why would Clinch himself believe this would be a good thing? Clinch, as a son of a revolutionary forebear, would have held the view that unification of disparate elements forms strength. Ironically, the converse was true. The various tribes might have been willing to move, but not as one overall Seminole nation, and certainly not to be part of some amalgamated Creek nation. Miccosukees and Seminoles proper would have been satisfied if the federal government gave them individual reservations and didn't combine them. There wasn't any necessity to combine them. The government just felt it would be easier to combine them because then instead of dealing with seven or eight different tribes, you deal with one tribe. You, you see what I mean? It was convenient for the federal government. In the 1950s, when the Seminoles in Florida were finally allowed federal reservation land, there was still a division. A number of the Seminoles of Florida didn't want to integrate into the larger tribe, and they became the Miccosukee tribe, which is still in Florida. And there's even a third grouping of Florida Indians who've chosen not to live on reservation land. So the idea of a Seminole nation was more a United States construct than a desire among the various tribes in Florida. Americans are the ones that consider Seminoles all one people. I've never seen any distinct determination by any Seminole leader to combine the Seminole into one people. 
United States government wanted them to combine. And then in the removal years, in the 1830s, the interest of the federal government was that the Seminoles of Florida would eventually recombine into the Creek or Muscogee tribe, which they did not want to do. The goal of the United States in the 19th century was to combine all the Indians. Look at the whole point of concentrating all those tribes into the Indian territory around what's now Oklahoma. The federal government had carried out its process and it was largely successful. You'd have essentially an Indian state where in the 1880s that was altered by changes in the law and the subsequent, my understanding, eradication of the tribal boundaries in Oklahoma, but that's a separate issue. How much of their individual band identity were the tribes of Florida able to maintain once they were in the Oklahoma Territory? Censuses of the Seminoles and the Indian Territory showed that the bands of Calacuche and Alligator remained in one district, and Black Dirt's people were far out on another side of the reservation, and Micanopy and this band here and there. From what I've read, Seminoles continued distinct in different groups for years, and it's there. They remain traditional familial association as members of their towns, which we would call band perhaps, like I said, Tallahassee, Miccosukee, Seminole, Uchi, etc. And that you also have the strength of their kin in that you have clans within the band, you know, the Wind Clan and the Bear Clan, etc. Function in that clan and town system. And some of the towns may have combined over time, but they evidently, the clans still exist, the clan distinctions, and many of these town distinctions exist. I study this period, and I have trouble getting my arms around these distinctions. It should be easier for us to understand this, I think, in the sense to look at our own country. We are the United States of America. We're not the United People of America. We're the United States of America. If you look at the Seminoles as the United Tribes of the Seminole, then that would probably be a better description for them as a group than Seminole Tribes. And as I understand it, the Seminole were trying to maintain their independence on several levels. Unity is strength. Seminoles were fighting to maintain not just their independence in terms of not being reintegrated into the Creek tribe in the West, but also in retaining what independence their towns and their clan system had in existence in Florida. And they were united in their resistance to the United States, which was threatening that independence among them. Much like, you know, the King of England was offending all 13 peoples of the 13 colonies who then united. Unlike the 13 peoples of the United States, who united in wartime against a common foe, and who later confirmed a more comprehensive political union, in Florida, the tribes remained distinct, as you've pointed out. There's a Seminole tribe of Florida, there's a Miccosukee tribe of Florida, there's the Independence, but there's no Seminole nation of Florida, like a nation for the United States of America. In this act of declaring and then nurturing this political fiction of a seminal nation in Florida, Clinch, who was commanding general of the Florida Territory Forces through the 1820s and half of the 1830s, loomed quite large in his influence. Clinch was a party to that whole process I just described of essentially creating a seminal nation in the 1820s. That the seminal people, by and large, did not coalesce until the War of Removal commenced that was out of General Clinch's control. Once that was evident to him that the Seminoles didn't have a unifying authority that he could utilize, that's when he realized that this was not a situation that military force alone could conclude because with 10 or 15 different individual bands of Seminoles with their own Mikos or chiefs pretty much doing things as they saw fit, 
although coming together perhaps annually in order to have a national council to determine upon what degree they were going to cooperate in their resistance effort. Clinch didn't see any means of wrapping that up in any reasonable time. What did Clinch have from the government to offer the Seminoles to entice them to remove to the Oklahoma Territory? The government's removal policy was a carrot and stick policy. Each warrior would get a brand new rifle, they were going to get clothing, they were going to be paid cash for their cattle, etc. And when they were removed out west, they would get food and seed for a year. How they viewed the carrot part isn't quite clear. We can assume they didn't like it because most of them didn't openly turn out to emigrate. But there were four or five hundred under Black Dirt and Polata and Matla who did come into Tampa Bay before the war really commenced. They actually formed a band of 70 or 80 friendly Seminole warriors that marched with Gaines's command. It's that four or 500, some of them were considered to be Creeks from Apalachicola. But if you take them as part of the four or 5,000 or 6,000 Seminoles in Florida, that's almost one-tenth of the whole that had come in to immigrate before. And according to Black Dirt and Yellow Hair and others among them, they felt there were probably others that would have come in, except the anti-removal party had shown its teeth. They had assassinated Charlie Amatla, a leading chief who opposed immigration in council, but he was going to immigrate, and he'd sold his cattle and saved money, and the story goes Osceola waylaid and shot him. So Osceola, in one account of the period, is described as being something as the Seminole Sheriff. So if that's the case, Osceola was uh, acting on the orders of something like the United National Council, as it were, but he wasn't doing it necessarily as a mystic leader. He was fulfilling a particular role along the Seminole border, a role that wasn't really created by the Seminoles, but more by the whites, in the sense that they're the ones that wanted a Seminole nation. Lumping all the various tribes of Florida into one greater Seminole nation allowed the government to streamline its communications, negotiations, and political dealings with the tribes in Florida. The federal government use this construct of a Seminole Nation to demand treaty revisions or outright abrogation of treaties with the Seminole Nation, and ultimately to demand they vacate their homes in Florida and remove to the Oklahoma Territory. What was behind this? What was driving these demands? And why was it so urgent that they must move 10 years before their treaty was to expire? A lot of investment was coming into Florida, and one of the major reasons why the Floridians wanted to remove the Seminoles is particularly the, the wealthy Florida, what few there were, was that few lands that you wanted to sell or subdivide. People didn't want to move onto an Indian borderland, particularly when there's a threat of war or violence. And if you remove all the Indians, then the threat of Indian war is gone. And if you've invested in lands on the borderlands, then you could sell them for a profit, potentially. To justify this, the Indian agent pointed to the Indian Removal Act of 1830. This federal law, applicable to all the states and territories within the Union, was passed to remove all Indians on the eastern side of the Mississippi River to the western side into a tract of land they designated as Indian Country or the Oklahoma Territory. The government used various justifications to explain the policy behind this law. In Florida, the paramount reason was land acquisition. The Seminoles were on the land, and the federal government wanted it. Therefore, backed by this law, the government expected the Seminoles would move, one way or the other. 
existing treaties that guaranteed their right to the land notwithstanding. The whole point of the Florida War was a huge eminent domain battle over salvaging the investments already made in the territory and perchance providing incentive for more investment into the territory. War in the Florida Territory of the 1830s was assuredly bad for business if one's business was in agriculture. Anyone that had invested in Florida essentially prior to the Seminole War had to sit on their hands. They weren't going to turn a profit for several years <laughs> until the war was looted, some peaceful arrangements made, and settlers were moving back in and people could rebuild. The government was involved in a tremendous land grab, and they would grab the land peacefully if they could, or by war if they could not. What was the problem with some of the land, though, that investors had put money into, and which the government intended to put up for sale to even more investors? Florida was considered a backwater in the cotton cultivation south of Noonanville or what roughly today's Lake City was considered impossible or ridiculous. And so even many army officers thought, why don't we let the Seminole keep their reservation? It's not land we can use for anything. And indeed, it really wasn't used for anything until the turpentine industry and the cypress logging came around in the 1890s, 60 years after the Seminole War and clear-cut Florida and the former reservation land and limestone, etc. And now, really, the former Seminole Reservation is good for subdivision. Although they had their challenges agriculturally, Floridians did try to make a go at cash crop cultivation, the most notable being sugar. How did they fare? The sugar cultivation was better in the tropical islands because it was almost never a cold snack. On the equatorial region, in the 1760s, the British established a lot of that sugar industry out there on the Florida Atlantic coast. The problem with sugar cultivation is you had to process the sugar rapidly in the fall because a cold snap would ruin it. In Florida and Louisiana, they thought Florida would be better because it's further south, but still in Florida there would be years where the cold would come in and it would reduce the yield on the crop. What would happen, take the sugar planters in Louisiana, they would hire almost every slave they could find, bring them in so they produce the sugar as rapidly as possible and they would run the mills night and day until the crop was done because if the cold weather sets in, they could ruin a lot of the crop for profit. Seminole attacked and destroyed sugar plantations along the east coast of Florida in the 1835 to 1836 period. What became of these? Seminole War broke out and you had that enormous, outrageous amount of violence where the Seminole raiders destroyed practically the whole sugar industry on the East Coast. Significant loss of capital. That was devastating. The losses for those sugar planters were high. and It was not a wildcat American sugar boom. When it got sacked, the owners just went elsewhere. I bring this up because of these investments that had been made in the Florida sugar industry, the destruction that was wrought. There were some cases the owners would seek redress by the federal government, uh, claiming that their losses were due to the federal government action against the Seminoles. Can't specifically state, but I believe that there were claims made against the Seminole tribe, and I'm not sure if any of the planters got redressed. Evidently, in the years after 1835-36, they looked at their portfolios, I suppose you could say, and the owners just went elsewhere. Those places didn't get rebuilt, and so we have such marvelous ruin over there of, of the sugar plantation sacked by the Seminoles. War's end. Couldn't the owners come back, or couldn't somebody else buy the land and build upon it for a sugar plantation? In the 1840s, David Levy Uly built his sugar plantation on the Homosassa River, and it was the most modern you could imagine. And even though he ran it scientifically, it really wasn't a big producer. 
The sugar industry in Florida didn't prove to be as lucrative as was hoped. Of course, later, the Everglades became an experimental zone for sugar agriculture. I mean, that's a different story. When the government has set its sights on something, like, say, Indian removal, it can easily and happily find any plausible justification for why they must take urgent action to address this Indian problem. In point of fact, stoking fear about conflict with the Indians was just a handy excuse to obtain public support. The real issue was the land. They had to have it. Ignore a lot of the political statements of the time. Like Jackson's, we need to remove them west because they're uh, people that are inconsistent with our own citizenry. They have different ways of doing things. View what the data that was coming to the politicians was. And what does that data tell us? The significant, enormous boom of income to the federal coffers that the sale of those lands would potentially provide. That in itself, to me, is the obvious and the only real issue of the Indian removal. How does the case of the Cherokee argue against removal? But they were removed anyway. The Cherokee, in almost every way, were integrated into the economy. They had planters, they grew cash crops, even in some cases. Two things working against them. The Cherokees' lands, the fact that they were able to cultivate them profitably, that made it clear that somebody else needs to cultivate it. And also, once gold was covered in some quantity, that was the clincher. Gold? We gotta get them off of that. Holy cow. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 created a necessity to remove the Indians. But what was the necessity the U.S. government felt was so strong that they had to pass such an act? Policy of Indian removal in Florida can't remove it from the larger policy of Indian removal nationwide. The United States government derived the majority of its government revenues from tariffs, taxing imported manufactured goods, particularly from England. The Indian removal had its opponents in Congress, but it was largely proved in 1830 as a national policy. The number escapes me at the moment, but the estimates that were produced that the Indian reservation lands east of the Mississippi, once the federal government acquired title of those lands and then auctioned them, they considered that federal revenues from those Indian lands was going to be potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. And this is a government that spends about $20 million a year, essentially. The boon in the finances of the federal government, just obviously, the, the, many of the legislators, they, they couldn't say no. They may not have liked the policy. They may have agreed with Congressman David Crockett when he said that he had no doubt that there should be some dealings about negative situations with the tribes and reservation issues, boundaries, but that this policy is probably the wrong way to go about it. There are many that may have agreed with it, but when they saw the numbers that the public sale of the Indian lands were going to bring in vastly large amounts of revenue. And what would the revenues from the sale of Indian lands offset? If you're on the side that didn't like the high tariffs on manufactured goods, if you were someone that assumed imported goods, you didn't want high taxes on them because you didn't want to pay as much for them. So what are you going to do for an alternative means of government revenue? And Jackson and his party found that, well, we'll sell the Indian lands in East Mississippi and we'll give them land west of the Mississippi in return and we'll give them revenues. Each of the tribes that moved west, each warrior got a brand new rifle. The government bought thousands and 
thousands of marvelous Derringer-made rifles. Gave them to the Indians when they emigrated west. Clothing, food. There's a certain irony here. The federal government was notoriously stingy in the services it provided to the citizens of the United States. President Madison had made comments that the United States is a government that does engage in benevolence to its own citizens, but the tribes that would like it and stick. We want them to cooperate because we're going to derive a significant revenue potentially from selling their land east of the Mississippi. And that could potentially be a means of reducing the tariff, which would then reduce a lot of the political trouble that Jackson was having. You had South Carolina in 1832 threatening over the tariff laws, for example. You could look at it like in order to unify American politics, the government threw the Indian tribes under the bus. Now, how much revenue the United States actually derived from the sale of the Indian lands east of the Mississippi River, I don't know. I couldn't say. There was a demand, particularly the Creek country in Alabama. Before the Creeks were removed in 1836, there was significant descriptions of enormous land consortium representing investors from across the country and even in Europe, congregating at Columbus, Georgia, across the Chattahoochee River, just waiting to get in there and, and plant their stakes on the best land for cash crop cultivation. As remember, was king. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 passed the Senate with a respectable 28 to 19 vote, but in the House it was another matter. A few votes in a different direction and it would have failed. Some Americans thought it was bad policy, others found it to be downright evil. Still, there were Americans who were ambivalent about the removal of Indians from their lands. Why was this? Why didn't common Americans, why weren't they really offended by the removal of the Indians west of the Mississippi River? In this same time frame, high taxes and burnt out soil and other issues were forcing a mass migration of Americans west. And there were whole counties in the Carolinas that were practically depopulating the people moving to Alabama and Mississippi. Some of them moving onto the Creek Reservation. In fact, by the time the Creek War of 1836 broke out and the removal, some estimates say there were almost 20, 30, or more thousand Americans living among the Creeks in the Creek Reservation. And uh, notably, no war, by the way. They were renting lands from the Creek. And so you had a lot of Southerners moving west to get away from land speculators and the whole cash crop system. But the cash crop system was moving west with Southerners for profit. It was kind of a boom. You could just get credit. So what are you going to use for credit to buy more? slaves to then engage in cash crop agriculture, well, you get hold of a lot of good land. Now that the Indian lands are available, especially in Alabama, North Georgia, you buy hundreds of acres of good land and you can use that as collateral to get credit to buy slave labor. And so you have a lot of people like that that were moving to Alabama. You had yeomen moving to Alabama. You had wealthy people and a lot of slaves moving to Alabama. And that led to a bigger issue than the Indian removal, because when the creeks were gone and out of Alabama, then you had the squatters that were sitting on some of those fine lands, and many of them had built fine farms. And then had the land investors by auction buying properties out from under the settlers. And so that led to some interesting times in Alabama in the late 1830s, until federal law came to the aid of the squatters and gave them some preemption rights in land sales. You'd actually build a farm, then we'll give you first chance to buy it. That only came later, after a lot of people already been thrown out of their farm. In the case of Florida, other than the sugar crop, the problems of which you've already outlined, the territory just wasn't a big haven for cash crops. It wasn't because farmers had depleted the land, as had been the case in the Carolinas. It was that the land was just not suitable for large-scale cultivation of cash crops.
We would be remiss if we did not mention that the Seminoles themselves cultivated the land, and some tried to raise cash crops. However, it was nowhere near the size of the plantation operations. In addition, their view of ownership rights to the land was different from what the whites had. Even the Seminoles had tried to cultivate cash crop, their reservation. There's some reference that Sitarki was cultivating rice or sugar cane in the, with the Coochie River region by the end of the 1820s, but it didn't come to much. There was John O'Pony, built a Seminole plantation, the head waters of the Peace River. But after he died, it was abandoned. They had the same agricultural methods, essentially, as the poorer white people, but they had their own means of doing things. For example, when a man died, frequently his home would be abandoned, so the John O'Pony's place was abandoned by 1836. It, it had been described as being a really interesting farm, well-managed, slaves were working in it and everything, and then he died, and then it was abandoned. Well, it's not uncommon among the Seminole. When somebody died, they would move away from that place. They see the, the Americans wouldn't have done that. They would have seen that the property in itself as having a value. It would have been inherited by someone and continue working it. The troops didn't find much value in Florida, but the U.S. government felt it could make some money off of selling the land that the Seminoles were on. How fair an assessment is this? You can read the officers' accounts of the war. They, most of the accounts are by them. And many of them say that. They're like, this place is worthless. What are we doing this for? We now, in hindsight, can see that they weren't thinking ahead. You go back to the 1600s when America was settled by the British and the Spanish. The Spanish is not really that much different, or the French, for that matter, in Canada. From Jamestown on, there's investors that were investing in the cultivation and the use of land in North America. That really hasn't stop. You buy a piece of property, even a house, and it has market value and the hope is that it will retain it or it will improve in value. Doesn't always happen because it's a risk and reward system we have here. A risk and reward system we have here. Certainly the sugar plantation owners discovered that to their great chagrin once the Second Seminole War started. And as you reminded us, Jesse, that destruction stemmed from what the U.S. government felt was a necessity to relieve the American South of the tax burden from high import tariffs. It chose to fund a tariff reduction by selling land within its territorial borders. To be able to make available occupied land for sale, it would have to remove the Indians who lived on it. It would offer enticements, incentives, and bribes to persuade the Indians to accept relocation. And in the Florida Territory, it was prepared to coerce the Seminole occupants by war if it came to that. But before the U.S. government could act, the Seminole struck first to prevent them. Jesse Marshall, thank you for joining us to explain the underlying causes that triggered the conflict in 1835 and set the path to the Second Seminole War. Well, thank you, Patrick. Hopefully some of what we've commented upon will be useful. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, 
by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.